0: Welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. This is Week 1. What is Discipleship? An Introduction to the Fundamentals of Discipleship. Alright, let's get started. I want to tell you a story first, just to just to, um, just to get us started. Some of you may have heard this story already. Um, so, I uh, went to high school in Japan, and when I... Graduated from high school and went to a college in Michigan and uh, I majored in English and It was during college that I, that I thought I was discerning a call to ministry. in other words, I felt like God was leading me towards ministry and My primary rationale for that was I felt like the skill set matched what I had, and I liked the idea of the job being a pastor is you get to do a lot of different things it 's highly social, so you 're with people, you talk with people. And I thought I was a good fit for it. And I grew up in that environment, so I was very connected to it. My parents were missionaries, right? So I went to seminary and uh, did three years of seminary. And in seminary, it's very academic. They teach you Greek and they teach you Hebrew. And they teach you psychology and they teach you philosophy. And I I did pretty well. I was in the top half of my class. I wasn't like the top of my class, but I did did okay. And uh, my third year, I was like the student senate president and... I was like, you know, networking with professors, and I thought that was all going really well. And then, my fourth year of seminary, they make you do a one year internship, and that was my internship in New Jersey. And I did really well at that, too. And people liked us in New Jersey. They liked my wife, Christy, and I in New Jersey. We felt like we were effective in ministry. I was really feeling confirmed in my call to be a pastor. But something was still not quite right, I think, in my heart. And at the end of seminary, what they do in in our denomination is they sit you down with what's called the candidacy committee. And the candidacy candidacy committee interviews you for an hour to see if they will approve you to be ordained in the denomination. And I I knew that this was happening. I knew that I had this meeting um, coming up. Um, I didn't really prepare for it. I thought it was sort of a rubber stamping event. My entire life, people were just sort of you know, like, oh yeah, you're great. And they just sort of pushed me through. So I was expecting that this was going to be an absolute no-brainer. I was going to go in, answer whatever questions they had, and be on my happy way and get ordained in the church. So I had a one-hour interview with a group of people I'd never met before, and they were not, they were not really impressed with me. Um, and it didn't go super well. And I was waiting outside in the hallway to hear they give you a, either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Simple pass or fail. And the I was expecting... I, I know it, I knew it didn't good, go well, but I figured my charm and my wit would ha- sort of carry me through. A gentleman who was the, the chair of the team steps out into the hallway and looks at me very, very seriously and said, we're not approving you for ordination at this time. You didn't pass the interview. And that seriously was probably one of the worst moments of my life i i panicked and i didn't know what it meant it was it was so shocking i didn't really even fully comprehend what he was saying to me and i couldn't believe it i was astounded i'm i'm like what what do you mean like i'm like i didn't pass so what what happens now and the thing was you know i had spent 4 years in seminary preparing and in that moment it seemed like it all just fell apart, and I didn't. I didn't understand. Is this like I never am going to be a pastor, or I need to come back again in a year? So I kind of freaked out, and and uh, he's like, you know, he's like, "Are you going to be around today?" I'm like, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, well, we'll try and get in touch with you later. So from the, the time that he said that to me to the time that he called me back later in that day was absolutely awful, and I was angry. And I was mad because I felt like I was being judged. And who were these people that didn't know me to be telling me that I wasn't cut out to be a pastor, that there was something wrong? I was so upset. You remember that, Christy? It was awful. We had friends that were in town for graduation. My parents were there. Everyone was there. And I'm like, I didn't didn't pass. I was humiliated. It was awful. So, a couple hours later, they call me back. I, I had gone to back to seminary and told all my professors what had happened. They, they couldn't believe it. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. So, actually, people from the seminary went and, like, talked to them and said, listen, he probably just gave a, a bad impression. Will you please just see him again? Talk with him one more time. So... They called me back in later at around four or five p.m. and this time I, my attitude was completely different. I wasn't treating it as a red stamping event or a rubber stamping event anymore. I was like very serious, very earnest, just like doing whatever I needed to do to convince these people that I that I was taking the job of pastor seriously, and uh, that I was indeed called to be a minister. And for whatever reason, I made a better impression the second time, and so they're like, okay. And I tried to ask them, I asked one of the guys later what in the world happened, because I was so mad. And they're like, well, we didn't really see your heart. Um, And so I'm like, well, I don't know what the heck that means, but screw the denominations, screw you, I didn't say this, this is what I'm thinking, screw the denominations, screw you people, the church sucks, and I, I was mad at them, mad at God, and I went back to finish my internship in New Jersey. So this was an awful experience. And I didn't understand, at the time I was just mad and I was angry, I felt judged, I felt um, dishonored, you know, the whole bit. But it it created a sort of period of reflection in my life, and even though I was bitter for about it for a number of months, as I thought about it, what they had said and thought about my attitude, I realized that even though... I had, I had thought to myself, these people don't know me. How could they possibly judge me? That they had, in fact, picked up on something that was was not right in my attitude. That I, I was missing uh, an aspect of it. And I'm still, to this day, trying to figure out exactly what that was. But as the years went by, and I thought about that. It was a very painful event, so you know how those kind of events stick with you for a long time, and I would think about it in prayer and stuff like that. But um, Over time, I, I came to realize that there was, in fact, a lot of truth to what that group had seen in me, that there was indeed something in my heart that was not quite right, that needed to be changed. In a lot of ways, I was going through the motions of being a Christian, I was going through the motions of being a pastor, I was doing it for largely practical reasons but I think my heart hadn't been really fully converted yet um, that that love of God the passion for God a desire to have you know God in my life was not really there um, I, did, I didn't really spend much time in prayer I'm a, I was a pastor and I didn't really have much of a prayer life much of a de- devotional life and I, I think that in a way I was just floating through So, that ended, thank goodness, I graduated and I moved to New York City (laughs) to start this church. So, what happened that first year um, was that I went through a discipleship program with this guy named Drew Angus, who some of you know. Um, And this was the first time, believe it or not, even though I had grown up Christian, Even though my dad had taught me the catechism when I was a kid, even though I'd gone to church and Sunday school my entire life, I had never really been officially discipled. And Drew, for a year, met with my wife and I and took us through this course called Sonship. And the purpose of Sonship was to help the participants understand what the gospel was and then to actually apply the gospel to your life in practical ways. And what I realized after having been discipled was that I somehow had made it through that entire system without ever really thinking practically about what it means to believe the gospel, what it means to believe that I was a son of God and to allow that reality of my identity as a child of God to inform how I acted and and how I treated people and allow that to convict me of defensiveness and pride and things like that. Um, and so that had a huge, huge impact on my life. And so why do I why do I share this with you tonight? Well, a couple reasons. If there's anything that I learned, it's number one that I have a long way to go. Um, even though I had learned all that theology, learned Greek, learned Hebrew, I'm a whiz at Hebrew. Did you know that this dude had a uh, he had a Hebrew tattoo? And I'm like, oh, is that Hebrew? He said, yeah. He showed it to me, and I read it to him, and he was astounded that I could actually read his tattoo. So I know Hebrew, I knew. I I used to, I know Greek, um, but I realized that even though I was a pastor, I still had a long way to go. A lot to learn, a lot to process. And if I had a lot to go through and a lot to learn, that means that I think we all also have a long way to go. There's learning to be done, there's things to be digested, there's gospel to be understood and applied to our lives. That's one thing. But another thing is that discipleship always involves other people. It's not something, it's going to come up later again, but it's not something you can do alone. It took Drew as a discipler, a mentor in our lives, speaking into our life, challenging us, teaching us in order for that stuff really to, to get worked out in my life. And another thing is discipleship is not a neat process. It is a process. It's not something that happens overnight. But discipleship is messy. Oftentimes, um, the biggest areas of growth, the biggest times of growth in our life, are when we go through really, really rotten, difficult circumstances. Um, Those can be opportunities in which we grow and in in which we learn. Um, But the fact of the matter is that unless we go through these very difficult and sometimes very painful experiences, we don't get stronger. Um, How many of you know the story I've told maybe once before about the the trees in the biodome? Some of you have heard this. Okay, sorry, I'm going to reuse it. Uh, The biodome was this scientific experiment where they created a massive structure and they tried to create an independent ecosystem within the structure. So these, these scientists committed to living inside the biodome for a couple of years and they had their own plants and water and air filtration systems and everything. And they had fruit plants, but every time the fruit would bear fruit, the tree would bear fruit, the fruit would fall to the ground before it had ripened. And they didn't understand why this kept happening. Of course, it was a problem for them since they were trying to live independently within the biodome. The reason was there was no wind in the biodome. And unless the wind comes and batters a tree, when it batters a tree, it bends the tree and that strengthens the fibers and makes this tree strong. And if that wind doesn't batter the tree, the tree is not strong enough to bear the weight of the fruit. There's no fruit unless there's pain. There's no fruit unless there's battery. the same is true in our lives as well. unless we go through hardship, unless we go through struggles we don't actually grow but if we go through pain and we go through struggles um, and we allow God to be a part of that process, that is when we that is when we really grow. so my goal is to make this summer breakout sessions as painful as possible for you <laughs> to help you grow um, Why are we here tonight? We're here tonight because our vision at City Grace is sharing the life that is truly life. And if I were to ask you for a show of hands of how many people in this room feel like they are totally living and sharing the life that is truly life, um, I think we might be disappointed to find out that in fact a lot of people don't feel like they're sharing the life that is truly life. And I feel like um, that, that was our vision, but I'm not sure that we've actually helped people enter into that or understand what that means. So discipleship, what I hope is at least by the end of the summer that we're making big steps towards enjoying the life that is true life, moving towards that, and also learning what it means to share it with the city. Um, And the other reason that we're here tonight, as I mentioned, is because I do believe God's doing something new in our community and I want to create room through this process and through you, through your opinions, through your ideas, to inform what we do in the fall. So that is... The, that is the plan, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what discipleship is all about. But before I do that, I just want to pray for this endeavor, for God's blessing to be on it. Lord God, I thank you again for, um, for bringing us to this point and for all the work and um, prayer and planning that has gone into this. Um, I thank you for bringing each person here tonight. Um, I thank you for maybe the, the couple that are still on their way and for those who might be here next week. Lord, it is our desire to, to follow you as disciples and to learn what that means. And um, we pray, Father, that your love would just be made known in new ways, that you would discipline us, teach us, instruct us on how to, how to be a disciple and what that all looks like. And we pray that through this process that we would grow in our love, our capacity to love, that we would love each other, that we would love the city, that we'd be happier, that we'd be more content with our lives that we'd be freed from the things that um, that oftentimes take away our joy, like anxiety and nervousness. We pray you'd free us from all of that and help us to be able to truly embrace the life that, that you offer us in Christ. So, Lord, we give you this time and pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to just ask you a question. Um, when you hear the word disciple and you hear the word Christian, um, what in your mind is the difference between those two words? Any ideas? If I had a whiteboard, I would write it all out, but I don't, so maybe next time I'll... So I want to make a radical suggestion to you, and I want to ask that we scrap the word Christian for the summer and not use it and not even think about it. <laughs> um, I, want to, I want to challenge you guys this summer by saying that I don't, I don't care who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. I don't want us to use that language. I don't want us to think that way. Um, did, it, did you guys hear what I said? Was that radical or no? <laughs> okay, thank you. I think that the word Christian doesn't really mean a whole lot anymore. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who do very unchristian things. In fact, there's an entire book about it called Unchristian. And the book is about the fact that a lot of people, when they hear the word Christian, um, imagine somebody that's judgmental and political and homophobic and, and right-wing and stuff like that. And I don't think that at all has anything to do with what Jesus was about. Do you know when people find out that I'm a Christian pastor, the, one of the most common responses is, Oh, sorry for swearing. So I guess Christians are known as people who don't swear. Yes, that's really great. We're making a great impression in the world. We are the people who don't swear. That's what we're known for—not swearing. It's awesome. So, in a way, we're we're guilty. Uh, we at City Grace, I include ourselves in this, but also the church at large. Um, our goal has been to make Christians. For a long time, we wanted people to sign the dotted line. We wanted people to become Christians, and what we meant by that was we hoped that they would sign off on certain propositions, certain truths. And we said if a person um, believes Jesus died on the cross for their sins, bam, and they pray the prayer, bam, they're, you know, we got one. Um, They're a Christian. Get them baptized and send the newsletters celebrating. So, how, however many you know, people became a Christian, and you know the big Crusades. That's what they would do. They would they would give a gospel message, and they would say, "This is the truth. If you believe the truth, then you're a Christian." People would come down to the front. They'd give their lives to Jesus. They'd become Christians, and then they'd celebrate however many hundreds or whatever people became Christian. Um, but I want to suggest that and challenge us all tonight to not think about what it. To not think about what it means to follow Jesus in those terms, because in a way, um, being a follower of Jesus goes way beyond simply self identifying as a Christian. I mean, half the country on a forum would check off, identify as Christian, but that doesn't at all mean that their lives in any way reflect Jesus or reflect being on his mission of what Jesus was about. And so I want to say, let's not, let's not worry about who's Christian. Um, let's worry about whether we're following Jesus, whether we're being disciples. And think about it. When Jesus Jesus had 12 disciples, he died, was resurrected, he appeared to his followers, and then he went into heaven, he ascended into heaven. Um, For three years, Jesus spent an intense amount of time uh, discipling 12 people, 12 dudes. And do you think that when he went into heaven, after it was all said and done, that he, his expectation of them as disciples was that they would go to church every week, that they would do their quiet time once in a while, and that they would maybe volunteer on a ministry team or something like that? Was that what discipleship was about? Was that Jesus' expectation for those 12 disciples, was that they would be church-going Christians? No, right? No, (laughs) it wasn't. Thank you, Stephanie. Yes, yes. No, absolutely not. It was way more than that. It went way beyond that. The preparation process, those three years he spent with the disciples, was to release world changers who would go and tear it up, who would totally, radically change the world. That's what the discipleship process was about, was preparing them to unleash a movement that would completely change the face of history. And that's exactly what they did. So let's not talk about what it means to be a Christian. Let's talk about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Does the Great Commission say, um, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make Christians of all nations. Does it say that? Thank you. (laughs) Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus prepared his disciples to make disciples, not Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. It was a term that came later. In fact, it was a bunch of non-followers of Jesus who labeled them as Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. Um, followers of the way of Jesus. And so that begs two major questions. What is a disciple and what is discipleship all about? And so today, um, what I'm going to lay out for you is the fundamental aspects of discipleship. And what I mean by the fundamentals is, I mean the absolute essential elements of discipleship that make disciples what disciples are. And so if you were to take away one of these aspects, it would no, you'd no longer be a disciple. If you were to add something, you would no longer be a disciple. Here's what I mean. Um, so soccer has certain fundamental aspects, right? But imagine that, um, that a bunch of people are playing soccer, but then they decide that it's okay to handle the ball with their hands. Is that soccer? No. Thank you, Kathy. That's more like basketball or something. That's a fundamental aspect of soccer is that you play with your feet. So if you change the fundamental, it changes the thing. It's not soccer anymore. Okay. If you take away, um, if you take away the, well, if you add horses, then it's not soccer anymore. Then it's like polo or something. Um, If uh, you take away the goals, then it's like ballet uh, or something like that, or capture the flag. It's it's not soccer anymore. So the fundamentals of soccer, well, it's, it's about kicking the ball. There's 11 players, and uh, there's a goalkeeper, and there's a field. Okay, You take any of the fundamentals away, it's not soccer anymore. And so I want to say, these are the fundamentals of discipleship. You take one of these aspects of away, it's not discipleship any longer. Okay, And here's the first one. The first fundamental aspect of discipleship is that it begins with an invitation from Jesus to you. It is a personal invitation to follow Jesus. Uh, It's a call. Um, You're not a disciple unless you receive a call from Jesus to follow him. Jesus, whenever he called his disciples, went to them personally and said, you, come follow me. So it's personal, it's relational, it's from Jesus to the individual. Um, This is not a general call. This is not like, um, you know, like if uh, I'm in church on Sunday morning and and I make an announcement, and I'm like, hey, everybody, uh, we need volunteers for Team Strike Force. That's sort of a general call. It's not really to you individually. and That's why nobody ever responds to it. (laughs) People are like, whatever, because it was not individual. But I guarantee you, if you talk to any of the leaders at City Grace and you ask them, Dorothea, why are you small group leader? Why are you the coordinator for small groups? What would she say? Because she was personally asked to do so. Or Ashley, why are you hospitality team leader? Well, because you were asked to do it. In every situation, the people rise to the occasion and they do what they do because there was that personal invite. It's much harder to say no to me in person than when I just give a blanket announcement in church. Or like when the president comes on he says, my fellow Americans you don't really feel like he's talking to you personally. And if he said, my fellow Americans, tomorrow is a day of service and we should all go out and serve in our communities, then you'd probably just ignore him. But if President Obama called you up on the phone and said, Diedrich, uh, New York needs could use your help and I need you to help out at such and such a place at such and such a time, I guarantee Diedrich would show up that individual, personal call. And so the call to discipleship is similar. It's individual, it's personal. To be a disciple is to be someone who has heard the call, and you realize in your heart that Jesus has called you to follow Him, and you are responding to that call. So it's it's personal. Um, And final point: it's fundamentally a call to follow Jesus, who is a person. And so what that means is that discipleship is not merely learning things. There's a difference between Bible study and discipleship. Discipleship is much bigger than Bible study. Is Bible study important? Yes, it's important. But Bible study is not discipleship. Maybe it's a part of it. Because ultimately, being a disciple is not just learning things. It's not about information. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. Um, Discipleship is what it is only when it is connected to Jesus, it's about following Jesus, following this person. It's not about. It's not merely about theology. It's not merely about information. It's not merely about beliefs. Even. It's about a person. It's about a connection. Knowing a person. Imitating a person. Following a person. Does that make sense? Um, so it's it's personal. And so what does it mean then to? Uh, in what way are we connected to this person? Well, um, another the second fundamental of discipleship is that being a disciple is about being an apprentice or being a learner. The word, as I mentioned, is mathetes in the Greek. And mathetes in the first century was when a rabbi would call a bunch of students um, to follow him, then they would be his mathetes. They would be his pupils, his students. And we have to understand that in the first century, as I mentioned, it wasn't only about digesting all the teaching of the teacher, although that was a big part of it. In fact, some of what was expected was that the mathetase would learn everything that the teacher said verbatim, memorize it and internalize it, so that when the teacher, when the rabbi died, then they would all have it up here, and then they would be able to go out and spread the news about all the teaching of the rabbi. So a part of it was about learning, But it wasn't just about learning. When Jesus invited people to follow him, it was about apprenticeship. It was about not only learning information, but learning skills. It was about imitation. Um, The call to be a disciple of Jesus was when he invited the twelve to to, to be with him, they would eat together, they would sleep together, they would roam the countryside together, rub each other's backs, clean each other's feet, um, serve each other food. It was very much they did life together. And the students were expected to watch what Jesus did and then to be able to do the same things that Jesus did. And I'll tell you a story. Um, in the New York Times, there's an article about um, a woman who was an artist. She was a potter. And she had the amazing privilege to go to Japan and study under a master potter. This pottery person? Potter. Um, who was this, this guy, quite old, who had mastered some sort of Japanese art of pottery. And she had one year to learn about his technique and his skill. And did you know that for that entire year, he didn't let her touch a pottery wheel or touch clay even one time? Her job as the apprentice, because she was so novice, she didn't even have the, qu- the level or the appreciation to touch the clay. So he said, you can sweep my floor, you can clean the studio, and you can watch, but you may not touch the clay. And that was how seriously he took the apprenticeship, was that until she appreciated not just the clay, but the environment, the cleaning, all the preparation process, he wouldn't even let her touch the clay. Now, that's a little bit extreme, and in fact, Jesus is completely the opposite of that. So Jesus, whereas, you know, this guy was like, you do not even get to touch this holy clay. Jesus invites us to get our hands dirty and to, to do what he does and to experience, to learn um, through participation, through imitation. And so that's why at a certain point, Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs and tells them to do what they've seen him doing. Now, it's interesting that when it comes to um, discipleship, Jesus himself is a disciple. Um, in John 5 it's oh by the way who, who brought a physical Bible get it out we're gonna be vintage we're gonna be old school um, I, we encourage you all to bring your physical Bibles there's something I don't know kind of kind of like too too common or too like reading or Bible on the phone. So we're going to like get real, get authentic, and have physical Bibles. If you have one. If you don't have one, that's fine. Just use your phone. Anyway, this is from John chapter 5. Um, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself because uh, He can do only what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So you notice that even Jesus is imitating the Father, Jesus, in a way, is an apprentice or a disciple of the Father. He has a connection to God. He sees what God does. He hears what God says. And on more than one occasion, Jesus says all he's doing is imitating what he sees God do. And then he says to his disciples, you've seen what I've been doing with God. Now you look at me and use me for your model as how you're going to act, how you're going to do ministry, and how you're going to be present in the world. And so... Um, according to Jesus, he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. So to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, means, it's not just about learning, it's part of it, but it means doing what Jesus did. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Um, so there you have it, that discipleship is an apprenticeship process, a gradual, lifelong learning process. And I'll make another point here, and I'll move on. That you're always learning. A disciple is always learning. You never reach a point where you stop learning. And if you have, then you're not a disciple. Fundamental aspect of discipleship, the ongoing learning. Why? Well, because God is limitless. His love knows no ends. And so the life of a Christian, I'm sorry, the life of a disciple, broke my own rule, the life of a disciple is about continually Learning about God. Learning about ourselves. Learning what it means to follow Him. Next fundamental aspect, we've covered two fundamental aspects. Number one, it's about responding to the call of Jesus. Number two, being a disciple is about being an apprentice or a learner. It's a lifelong process. We're continually growing and learning. Third fundamental aspect of discipleship is about submission and obedience. Now, I realize that These words, submission and obedience, are probably, when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to religion, are probably one of our least favorite words to to hear about. The idea of submitting um, or being obedient. But I want you to imagine for a minute that my kids, Eli and Gus, have a choice at a certain point when they're old enough to obey me as their father or to disobey me. Now, let's imagine, for the sake of argument, that I am supremely wise, which I hope they think I am, at least for the first 15 years. Yeah, well, it's hopeless after that. Imagine I'm supremely wise, okay? They have a choice of whether to obey me or to not obey me, to submit to my authority as their father, or to not submit to my authority as their father. In the end, what will yield greater freedom for them and a a better experience of life? To submit to my all-knowing wisdom and authority or to fight against it and to reject it? Because if I'm all-knowing, then I know also how to set them up to have the best possible experience of life. I know how to teach them not to, walk out, not to run out into the street um, if the light is red, and to look both ways. I know how to keep them alive. I know how to teach them how to do well in school, to succeed. Um, I know how to teach them how to handle conflict and to love people. I know how to teach them—I'm supremely wise, remember— I know how to teach them to to be disciplined and to work hard and to honor their superiors and to get along with their friends. And if they fight me, if they try to escape that authority, if they try to do their own thing, if they try to break the rules, it only hurts them. And they could land in big trouble. They could land on the street. They could land in drug addiction. They could land in jail— and any one of those situations is, a, is, a, is less freedom, is less enjoyment of life. So I want to just say at the outset that even though this idea of submitting to God and, submitting and obeying Jesus sounds awful, if we imagine that Jesus knows what's best for us and loves us, then the irony is that it is in submitting to authority that we experience the greatest freedom. That's the irony of it. Um, and the reality is, unless we submit to that authority, we don't really understand who Jesus is. I mean, imagine that you go to a dietician, and you want to lose a couple pounds, and so the dietician lays out a a program for you to lose a bunch of weight, and it's like a 2,000 calorie diet with a certain amount of vegetables and meat and stuff like that. And you say, thank you so much, I'm so glad I finally have a dietician. I've been meaning to lose weight for a long time. And then you go home, and you totally just ignore the instructions that the dietitian gave you. Can you really say that's your dietitian if you're not even obeying what she says? Is it going to be helpful to you if you don't actually do the things that she tells you to do? No, it's not, right? And if you see her on the street and you're like, that's my dietitian, it's hypocritical. And so in the same way with Jesus, Jesus is not meant to be admired. He's meant to be obeyed. And there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who admired Jesus. This Bible always tells us that they delighted in his teaching. In other words, he's like Tim Keller. It's like people just like listening to him. He's fun. He's exciting. He makes you feel good. But the thing is, if you don't actually listen to what Jesus says, then it doesn't really do you much good, right? So a couple passages here. Uh, Jesus said, he emphasized, it's not just enough to hear it, but it needs to be obeyed. It needs to be put into practice. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Another passage, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will uh, of my Father who is in heaven. So a fundamental aspect of discipleship is that obedience, is doing, is taking Jesus seriously and and actually putting to practice uh, the things that he says. And this, I grant you, is probably one of the most difficult aspects of Christianity. C.S. Lewis um, found this particular aspect to be very off-putting. and it was a reason that for many years he did not he, he couldn't bite the bullet. He couldn't do it. Uh, he said no thank you to God because he realized that at the end of the day, following Jesus means laying it all out and, and basically saying, I'm not my own Lord, I'm not my own God anymore. but I'm going to take someone else's cue when it comes to how I'm going to live my life. This is what he said. Just listen the horror of the of the Christian universe was that it had no door marked exit. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. That's God. This transcendental interferer who comes into your life and screws things up. Right? If if its picture was truer, if it was true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business Mine only. So he wanted to submit in some areas, but to at least be able to guard some part of his life that God didn't have say over. And he realized that being a disciple is about opening up all the fences and gates and letting him take command and take control um, of his entire life. So that's one aspect of it, uh, is submission and obedience. Another aspect of it is fellowship. Um, There is no discipleship without fellowship, without community. Um, You can't be a disciple on your own. Discipleship is inherently relational. It's relational, first of all, between Jesus and us. It's relational, second of all, between me as a discipler and you as a disciplee, or between a mentor and a mentee, a discipler and and a disciple. It's relational within community. Um, Jesus said that he had 12 disciples, there was community among them. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he never, ever sent them out alone. He always sent them out in twos, just like Jehovah Witnesses, right? They're always in pairs. Um, They were never alone, and Jesus said that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, there again. It's always, it's never irreducible to one. The, the smallest unit of fellowship or community is two. Um, and so discipleship happens within community, within relationships, as we fight, as we love each other, as we learn how to get along. That's where discipleship is happening. Final aspect, the final, most irreducible, fundamental aspect of discipleship, and this is an area that I personally am, am really excited about, is that from the very beginning, discipleship is always, always something that turns us outward. The original disciples, do you remember what Jesus said to them when he called them? He said, come follow me and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. Yes, thank you. Fishers of men. And the idea there is that to be a disciple means that And this is from the very beginning. This isn't advanced discipleship. This isn't, like, extra credit discipleship. This is Discipleship 101. From the very beginning, he planted in their minds the idea that whatever it was that he taught them somehow had as its end goal, a destination, impacting other people. They were fishermen. And he said, you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for people. You're going to try to catch people. You're going to try to change people. Um... And they, they took him up on that, they followed him. So what we have to remember then, and this is something, I think, again, that we have to learn at City Grace, is something that we haven't done well, is that when you teach someone, and when you disciple someone, it's never just about them. It's never just about that person. But there's always an eye towards how that person is then going to take what they've learned, the love that they've received, the grace that they've understood, and carry that pay it forward, carry that to the next person. In other words, the goal of discipleship is always disciples making disciples. You disciple someone, at least in part, in order to train them and equip them to be discipling of others. Um, Alan Hirsch is a missiologist. He said that if every disciple in their lifetime discipled just two other people, effectively, that we'd get the job done Within two generations, the entire world would be Christians. If we discipled, if every disciple, discipled two others. So it's about paying it forward. It's interesting. Um, at a lake where I used to go when I was a kid in the summer times in Japan, um, I was a lifeguard, and I had to take one of those Red Cross um, lifeguard training courses in order to become a lifeguard. But the thing was that, and Red Cross knows this too, that you can't just have a training course for lifeguards because you'll always be limited in the number of lifeguards you have depending on how many people have taken the course. And of course, we're like way out in the mountains in Japan. And so what Red Cross did was it created a training program to train trainers. Does that make sense? So there were actually people within this community in the mountains, in Nagano, in Japan, that not only were lifeguards themselves, but they knew how to teach a course um, on how to be lifeguards, they were trained as trainers, and then I, I think that Red Cross even had a course for how to train the trainers who train the trainer who train the lifeguards. And so Red Cross, like they have these, you know, it just goes back and back. You can take, you can advance and go and go way beyond. But it's not just enough to have disciples, but there needs to be disciples who know how to, how to make disciples, and that's Jesus's endgame. That's his that's his plan for saving the world. Disciples making disciples, making disciples. So to close, any questions? <laughs> Dana's laughing. So to close, you've heard about the fundamental aspects of discipleship. Right? You take one away, it's not discipleship anymore. You add something, it's not discipleship anymore. But the big question is Why? Why would we want to do all that? Why would we want to um, submit? Why would we want to respond to the call? Why would we want to give up our lives? Why would we want to make disciples of other people? Why would we want to bother with church and bother with coming out on Wednesday nights? What is the purpose of all of this? Um, And Jesus' own disciples, at times, were like, Jesus is asking way too much. And they said his teachings were hard. And so at certain points they would get tripped out and be like, this is too much, he expects too much, he wants too much, we have to sacrifice too much, and we're, it's not for me. And they would walk away. But Jesus had his 12 disciples, right? And so as the crowds were leaving, they are abandoning him, and he looks to his 12 and he says, you guys aren't going to leave me too, are you? And this is what happens. He says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12 And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So why would we respond to his call? Why would we submit? Why would we be an apprentice of Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who he says he is, then it would be the biggest mistake not to. Because his life, his love, his grace, his sacrifice for us is what he offers to those who are willing to take him up on this adventure and this journey of being his disciple. And I hope that that is all what we um, take more seriously over the course of the summer. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygraceny.com for more information.